1: I was actually sitting on my rocking horse H2 and they were trying to get my attention but I was like hum- humming and singing, I think I was 10. It was my first time on stage and I remember fainting and then I just sang some Schlager and, um and, and, and everybody was applauding, saying, well, that was really good. And I, I, I seem to remember that incident. It must have meant something. I was only the guest singer, so I could be pretty crazy, you know, and just sort of tag along, which I did. But, I mean, I, I, I just loved all the people. They were nuts. They were all insane, you know, in a very good way. I never, I was too busy trying to be myself. Trying to be myself. Not being myself, you know. it's just trying so hard. And i had no idea that the song was already so big in the clubs like i had zero idea and i remember six in the morning my performance you know and i'm coming out and this wave of sharp screams and love you know coming towards me like literally like this wave and i hadn't even sung a note the beat started and people went crazy (laughs)
0: Billy Ray Martin first of all this has been an enormous pleasure just doing the research (laughs) sometimes when you do the research into an artist you discover parallels and places where your lives have crossed and experiences where they've crossed and also through the music Mm -hmm. certain emotions and times come back up Mm -hmm. and, um, and it's very touching and you're touched by it and that was the experience I've I've had, so I want to kick straight ah. in and talk about the Hamburg that you grew up in. And mm-hmm. what was the ha- Hamburg like at that time? Mm-hmm. And what was the family atmosphere like?
1: The ham- everybody who was there at the time or grew up in the, in the Hamburg of earlier times will confirm what I'm saying. It had soul. <laughs> it, it was just, full of soul because you had the one of the biggest the world's biggest harbors there and it was a time where sailors were coming from all over the world you know into hamburg bringing their cultures bringing uh, things from overseas I mean there were there were there were weird things I mean they were bringing animals and things that nowadays luckily wouldn't be allowed you know but they they would bring whatever they thought they could maybe sell or give to people you know i mean anything at all you know really really weird and fucked up things as well and um and so but it was like interesting and strange and and bizarre and then of course you had because of that you had the whole culture of the red light district which you know was a busy time let's say you know and there was a lot of money to be made so it was also very glamorous you know and uh, the business owners there i mean uh, they were up, up to about the mid and 70s mid-80s i mean they were get- getting seriously rich you know and the pimps were legends i mean this was like an episode of you know like 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 characters out of pulp fiction Hamburg style. I mean, they were all famous. When one of them died or something, there would be like a Hollywood style burial and every uh, gangster in in town would be, I mean, this was like the real shit, you know, and so it was just so alive and my grandmother, who loved Hamburg and who loved the whole scene, um, you know, in the area we grew up in, she made it even more exciting because she made it seem that way, you know, to me as a child, you know. She would take me on walks and, um, I mean, the Sunday walk could be literally down the reaper barn, you know, <laughs> and where some people would say, oh, you don't go there, but there was nothing seedy about it. For us, it was just looking at the glamorous gl- shop windows and and the paintings and the drawings of ladies and, you know, so this, I mean, this was a famous, famous time. This was the, the heyday of, of uh, Hamburg Harbor, Red Light District, you know? So it was so full of soul. And there was this, um, there was this uh, sh- uh, well, I wouldn't call it a shop. There was this place called Harry's Harbor Bazaar. And it was super, super famous. And it was a four-story, a, a, a small, long building, a, a four-story building that was selling things that sailors had brought. So you could find, um, ta- like there was a floor of, called the Dead Zoo. It was all taxidermied animals, you know? <laughs> so that was like weird. And the ground floor was all uh, shells and and, you know, things from the sea. And also, um, um, what do you might call you know, parts from ships and, and then, um, you know, the and, and I mean, there were even shrunken heads there from Africa and from, you know, and so as a kid, it was normal for me, oh, a shrunken head, you know, no problem. And some people have said to me, and now I know why you're so fucked up, because <laughs> like, you know, you saw so shrunken heads, you know, and I mean, people would buy that and hang it up in their living room, you know, <laughs> so.
0: Oh, that sounds really <laughs> <weird>. um, <laughs> But I mean,
1: also, don't forget, you know, all the central areas in Hamburg were working class. They weren't gentrified like they are now, you know. They were interesting. They were working class areas. Everybody knew each other. You know what I mean? So there was all that. It was a real community.
0: I mean, you're, you are from a working class family. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've read about that. And also, um, I just wondered what then did a working class family give you that has been useful in your life in your attitude in your in the way that you've worked through your life what what do you think they left you with in that way
1: probably everything because it i don't even know if it was a process but now i'm just so proud of where i came from you know because of our you know, the whole family background uh, being incredibly unpretentious. <laughs> That's a gift, right? So, I mean, it also leaves you with a lack of self-esteem because there's also that, well, all that stuff out there is not for us. So as a singer, because I already sang as a child. So there was the sense of, well, but I want to be on that television where those other people are, you know, and, and, and I would voice that to my family, you know, my grandmother. And my grandfather and there was a sense of no that's for other people you know so there is that but then it took me all my life to go well you know if I hadn't had to work through that that I mean I'm only now finding my my true self-esteem now I mean you know so so I think it's it's a gift but you don't necessarily know it's a gift until later in life you know
0: That's a really interesting point, because I I come from a working class family and I have the same vision. No one in our family had been to university. No one had ever worked in in the wider term, the arts or a creative industry. Mm -hmm. And it did seem like an unreal thing Mm -hmm. to want. Um, And this lack of self-esteem can also be a driving force in your life.
1: So do you feel it was that? it was that i mean but when you're young you kind of work through all kinds of pain but you don't necessarily in my case i was never really in touch with myself you know i just worked through the pain blindly because that's when you do when you're young you know there's a lyric by the picture boys which but which is one of my favorite lines we could do anything we're fearless when we're young you know so we work through the pain and but we don't realize that it, there's all that pain there, you know. We just work through it, you know. So, so uh, I had to, you know, it, I put, I mean, to to say it was hard, it would would be an understatement, you know. Um,
0: what what music um, were you around? What music did your parents play, and what music was sort of played at home?
1: I was brought up by my grandparents, and they had a, they had an Elvis collection, um, and they had a. Beatles collection and they had um, German Schlager music of course you know so I would listen to anything on the radio anything that was on the radio I knew and that would be my education but then also the direct they had this like uh I think there were 10-inch records at the time, right, and, and seven-inch records, so they had all that, so I grew up with a bit of history there, you know, which, uh, and the Beatles were still big when I grew up as well, you know, I mean, it wasn't like they were gone at all, and, and especially because they'd become famous in Hamburg, um, they were so very present, you know. Um, Didn't so your mother I up-
0: work at the Star Club?
1: She worked at the Star Club and at the top 10 after that. I can never uh, remember the sequence of it, but I think the top 10 was the after the, the Star Club. Yeah, she, she knew the Beatles. She, she knew them briefly when nobody you know, knew who they, they were just a band playing. And that's why my mother ended up staying uh, a waitress in the work in the red light district because she wanted to be around music. That was, that's what it was initially about. For her, um, and so she just stayed on, and then later kept, you know, her entire life. And she worked in the in the red light district. So did my aunts and my uncles and my stepfathers, So you know, so it's like a real, um, yeah. So and and to this day, I mean, the, the, those are the types of characters I write about. You know, in case I mean, anyone's sounds... wondering. <laughs>
0: well, it's also a very sort of streetwise type environment, and I can imagine that in that environment you grow up very quickly I know that you started
1: sorry yeah I was gonna say actually my grandmother was hell-bent on protecting me from all of the seediness that she didn't want because she said you know my daughter ended up there and this you know your mother and your and you are not if it's the last thing I do you know you you will not ever enter one of those places and go so she really kept me secluded I mean she really did keep me out of that whole environment um you know I you know except the, the walks around the area And I mean we lived there so it was nice but she really I mean until the time I left home I left home quite early but I was a teenager and um she really kept me on a On a leash, you know. She didn't want me to get into any trouble at
0: all. So, you you mentioned Elvis Presley and uh, and also Schlager music. I don't know who that might have been, Mariana Rosenberg, or yes, uh, also, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um,
0: I mean, these are real voices. These are incredible voices. So, was was it that that appealed to you about about the people that they were listening to at that time? And when did your musical tastes start to diverge? From theirs?
1: I think, I mean, in Schlager music, you had a, a, a huge amount of bad voices too, you know, uh, people, but, but it was about the songs. It was about a song structure, you know, it was about um, verse, bridge, chorus, you know, like a real proper songwriting thing. And I think that's what I learned from the radio and from the records, you know. And then, of course, if there was a, a great voice, even better, you know. Um, but I think I also learned just radio, radio songs, songwriting, you know, and then, um, and I, I think it was when, you know, I heard, when I had grown up just a little bit, you know, um, Elton John, people like that, that's when I really got into voices because I, I, his, his earlier music, you know, his voice is just incredible. And, um, so I—that's when I really became aware, you know, of uh, what people put across in, in their voice.
0: When did you realize that you had a voice?
1: I sang from, from lit. It sounds really weird, but from when I was born. Of course, I didn't know I had a voice, you know. But my my family told me later that. I was actually sitting on my rocking horse age two and they were trying to get my attention, but I was like humming and singing and they couldn't get my attention. So I was always singing, by the age of five, I was making demo tapes. And I mean, they were children's songs, you know, they they were nothing, but then sort of by age eight, nine, I was like, I was singing Schlager and I was singing whatever was in the charts and, you know, and I can't remember. Yeah, in the Hit Parade, we had this program, which you might know, the Hit Parade uh, on television. So I would, you know, every song I would sing, I would record, I, you know, I would say to my grandmother, here, send that off to my favorite singer, you know, find out her address, you know? So I was really becoming um, not so much aware, because, you know, I had no, I don't think my voice would have had a lot of character then, you know, but, I just knew I wanted to sing and that's all I was interest, ever interested in, you know. And then, Perhaps. you know, one day there was a family celebration and all the family were there and there were like 50, 60 people there. And then someone said, and I said, oh, I'll go up on stage. And I, I was, I think I was 10. It was my first time on stage. And I remember fainting, like almost, you know, like, cause I realized something was happening here that I had no, and then I just sang some Schlager and, um, and, and And everybody was applauding, saying, "Oh, that was really good." And I, I, I seem to remember that incident. It must have meant something, you know, so, so maybe mean, that was the point where I thought, "Ooh, these people are actually reacting to something here, you know? So I mean,
0: one of the interesting things is you mentioned that your grandmother, obviously the matriarch of the whole family, because she sounds like she was yeah. the, the the strong, dominant yeah. uh, figure. And yeah. also that the idea that you could be in television, i.e. follow your creative path, was alien mm-hmm. to your family. Mm-hmm. So how did they react when you said, and I know this comes a bit later, but when you said, OK, I'm off to Berlin?
1: Yeah, I actually I'm trying to remember because I, I left home quite early and uh moved in with my mother which was weird and then I sort of went between London and Berlin. I started going to London kind of running away, you know, on the ferry from Hamburg, you know. Um so uh so I'm trying to remember I think I might have gone to London first even for a short time, you know, and then I went back to finish school and then you know got went back again to London, went to and then I think I then went to Berlin. Um, yeah, I, I they did. I mean, my grandmother was very sad. She didn't like it, you know. Um, but there was I mean, nothing could stop me, you know, And also leaving your friends behind and realizing there's a big change happening.
0: So what sort yeah. of Berlin did you enter into? Because this is Berlin pre-war? Uh, it's it's an island, in a sense, mm. in East Germany, where you go through these corridors to get there. It's an mm. island full of people who were escaping, uh, having to go um, to the army, young yes. people mainly. Yeah. And yeah. it was, you know, it was a vibrant, incredible city. Yeah. What What did you yeah. see it as when you got there?
1: Yeah, it was really nice because it was a time where it really didn't, lag behind london in terms of being really really vibrant and interesting which now i mean you know or i think it was probably maybe even the one time where it was that it was insane it was an insane place um i don't know if you've seen margarita's movie about you know, Berlin, you know, I mean, that was his experience. Mine was partly a little bit different, but it was, it was, there was that, and it was just nuts and everybody could do what they wanted. And because it wasn't about money, Berlin was about money. So in all the bars and clubs and venues and everywhere, you had just people from all walks of life. You had all the artists and you didn't have to have money or be famous, um, but they all came together. And that's the one main difference that, uh, you know, you could stand next to David Bowie or one of the, you know, famous German painters or uh, whatever artist and you're a nobody, but you know them and you hang out with them, you know. So that was what made Berlin so incredible. Nobody gave a shit about money. Nobody had it.
0: I talked to Mark Reeder the other week and, yeah. uh, and I know him as well, but it was just a mm. fascinating talk because he mentioned all that that you're saying. And also that we forget that uh, West Berlin was so small in comparison to what Berlin yeah. is today. <laughs> and, and this idea of bumping into people and also yes. that you didn't need much money to live. Yeah. And everyone was looking for something to do in a sense, so yeah. creatively. Yeah. Yeah. so you could you could quickly meet and work with other people so yes. how did that show itself what happened to you
1: i mean you would literally the most famous club was the jungle um you would literally meet people there and they would say hey, who are you? You know, you look interesting. So, you know, shall we move in together or shall we, you know, do a project? I paint, you know, and I do this and I do that. I mean, that's how it would work, really, you know. And you made a lot of friends and, and people found you, you know, if you were a hit on the dance floor, you know, people would find you incredibly interesting and you've become a bit of a local, you know, and I mean, I started singing in bands and, and we became a quite really well known overnight, like, you know, and then there were other bands um, and they were the same and, and we would compete, uh, that, you know, because it was such a small city in a way, um, there was so much competition, but it was really healthy, you know, um, so yeah, and you could go, I mean, you know, you had all the, the bands performing locally. And that's what made it really exciting, too, you know. Um, and and um, all the new wave groups and all that, you know. So, so how was, did
0: Berlin yeah. affect your sort of musical knowledge and your musical experience? And also then how you developed your voice?
1: Yeah, I mean, Berlin just gave you permission, I think, you know, to to explore because, you know, you could get... Rehearsal rooms cheaply, so I rented one, you know, and then you'd go in with people and 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 you know I did soul music, sixties garage music, psychedelic, you know, I tried because there was a big sixties revival scene. Um, and then in the bedroom, we also did some, you know, Depeche Mode, <laughs> rhythmic type of stuff, very badly. And some really great, batchet crazy electronic, I mean, literally just all happening, you know, at the same time. And then, and I was kind of figuring out, well, I don't know how my voice would fit into all that. Um, and um, one day I went to a record shop in, uh, off, just off the Kurfürstendamm in Berlin, and I was going through 60s garage compilations to buy. And the guy, young, really young guy who worked behind the counter, his name is Zaid, came up to me and said, have you ever heard Martha Reeves or the Supremes? Have you ever heard soul music? And I, I don't know why he did that. There's no reason why, you know. And I said, well, No, yeah, no, not, you know, maybe, not really, you know? And he said, you know what? I'm gonna order you a couple of compilations and come back next week and pick them up. So he ordered um, Martha Reeves' compilation and the Vandellas and uh, Supremes. And that changed everything. It changed, so I was was messing around with all these different styles, you know?
0: But tell me, before you say what it changed, Mm. When you listen to that music, and you listen to their voices, mm. what did you understand from that, that you could take from that?
1: That there was a different world out there um, where emotions come into play. and Emotions are the operating, you know, the, the operative system there. Um, it's all about feelings and emotions that I had not taken into account. Um, They were singing about everyday things too, but they were singing about them in a way that just went straight to the core of you, you know? And, And that was like, I mean, Martha Reeves, her earlier stuff has a really simple song, love, love, love makes you do foolish things, you know? But when she sings them, she puts it across, something whole, something bigger opened up, you know? And I mean, the production, the sounds, all of it, you know, it just went straight to your heart. And I went, oh God, how do I, so now I have that and and I wanna, that's, that's me, this, this is it, you know. And uh, so I started practicing and rehearsing and then combining that with, you know, I would then sing gospel badly at that time over our bedroom electronic shit, you know, and, and also in the, in the 60s revival, you know, and then I formed a soul band. So it was all, you know, and I I just couldn't put, I couldn't so produ- music production and then my singing voice had to be somehow brought together, and I think to this day, I'm still trying and, and exploring. And there are songs that I sing where my voice just doesn't sound right, but because I've written the song, I like it, I'm going to sing it somehow, you know, so some songs were better than others, I think, you know um some songs might be more successful in terms of the, the production and the way my voice sounds you know so I mean, there's no recipe which i have you know that you know that you know when aretha franklin sang a song she made it all her own you know and and aretha always sounds like aretha but i i i don't have that gift i i tend to sound different all the time you know and there are songs sometimes that i sing where that is me, what comes out is, is sounds like the, the ultimate me. So there are songs like that, but then there are other songs where that doesn't happen and I have to see how I make it work, you know.
0: I mean, so. those, those bands in Berlin were the Subtones and Billy in the Deep, I think, that you were, yes. you were yeah. talking about. Um, yeah. Where, you know, when, when you um, sing someone else's song and I know this is early on in your career, um, mm. where was the moment and you sort of mentioned this a little bit, saying that you, you, you don't always know if you transfer the emotion of the song, but you have to somehow find the emotion within you yeah. to be able, it might be another event that's happened in your life
1: mm-hmm. to
0: the event that the writer or the singer at first transported yeah. it. And you have to find that emotion and that event to be able to transport it. When, when did you start understanding that mm-hmm. this was the power of transporting a song?
1: I, I'm trying to, trying to remember, but I think, I think when I, when I sang with the subtones, I was only a guest singer there, you know, and with Billy and the Deep, I I was really shouting, just shouting it out. And I still wasn't, you know what I mean, really exploring, I was just like, whatever came out happened, and that was that, and then I moved on, you know, so it was just really funny. so, but the process that I'm now, like exactly how you describe, you know, that I'm now very aware of, that might've happened around the time when I moved to London and we formed Electra 101, cause I remember hearing, I mean, there were sort of events that, that sort of changed the way I was looking at singing. Um, and one was, um, we covered Inside Out by odyssey you know and that was a song that back in berlin as a kid you know i i i'd heard that on the radio and it made me stop in my tracks because he was like a really soulful number but the singers weren't shouting and they were you know there was this really low sung um, mel- um very mellow delivery of of i didn't know who the singer was you know But that song just stuck in my head, you know, and then the other time that happened was again in Berlin, I was walking into yet another record show, and uh, I'm going to tear your playhouse down by Ann Peebles was playing. And again, I just stood there. And they had the record cover up by the till, so I could see who it was. And I said, yeah, give me that, you know? And that, again, that changed everything because Anne Peebles always sort of, there's just this part of her which understates everything, you know, where she's not going for the high notes necessarily and she's not going. And that's when I realized there is a, there is something here to be explored, you know? So where do I really fit in and why do these songs really appeal to me?
0: I mean, I think there is a greater power in the understatement, which definitely comes across in in a lot of your work. Um, And that is quite beautiful because it makes the song stronger in some way. Um, How do you view this sort of understatement?
1: Um, Well, sometimes I think, oh God, here I go again, singing singing a song in a lower octave. And and I'm sure people out there wanna hear me belt out a song, you know? so sometimes I think like, oh, here we go again, totally under, under challenging as well for my voice, but I want to put the emotion across. So I make that choice that that's what matters, you know, the melody that I wrote and the emotion that I felt when I wrote the song, you know, and so I go for it and I'm like, oh God, here we go again, you know, so I'm, I'm really unsure of myself half the time, you know. And sometimes I notice that my voice really works, like I said, you know, with with a song, even if it's understated, and other times I just think it's understated, you know. So it really varies.
0: Now, you, you know, you were in Berlin, you were in these couple of bands, and you were getting your first experience, and then you decide to go to London. What was that decision? Were you unhappy in Berlin, or was it really, I want to experience something else now, or I want to take my chance?
1: Berlin started being very complacent people started just hanging around and the heyday was over and gentrification slowly came in you know and um, and I just said to my band members "I'm I'm gonna go you know and and uh, why don't you join me you know we we see if we can, you know, so i would made some effort to get us signed there and stuff, you know, so I'd be sending tapes to rough, to rough trade and all that, you know? So, so it was that. um, And also, you know, because I'd been uh, traveling to London a couple of times just to hang around and see, and and I knew it was my home. I knew it was my second home or my first, maybe even I just knew. Why? Because people were behaving. I mean, Germany, Ger- Germans are stuck up, man. And Hamburg is a very pe- people are very sort of timid and 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 quite stuck up. And I just knew as a teenager and as a child there has to be something else out there. And then you go to London and you go to the marquee to see a band, you know, and everybody's celebrating and everybody's talking, strangers talking to you. I'd never experienced that. I remember I started crying actually. Um, because I knew that existed out there that people were being nice to you you know and people were into having a laugh and being less stuck up and you know and and people just walking up to you because you know they might find you interesting and saying Do you want to drink you know that does not happen in Germany or at least not to me so um I knew I was gonna go but it was just about finishing school and doing some studies and, you know, and then going to London to be in a band or to form a band and, and to, because by that time, um, you know, you did have electronic music out there and I thought, wow, you know, I, I want to be part of that. And then when I went, house music happened and bingo, <laughs> you know? That's what I wanted to put my voice on at the time.
0: And you, you went to these first clubs that were yeah, really I sort did. of opening up, weren't they? There was, uh, I, I think it was the Paul Oakenfold night at Heaven that actually started in the club in Hungerford Lane. Do you remember the club behind Heaven, the little one? There was actually Heaven was two clubs. It was the massive. I do
1: club. the little was, one I went to yeah. later for some techno and stuff. I I do, Yeah, yeah, yeah. That little place. It was great.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. it Started there and then it then it grew into the into the bigger club. I mean, almost immediately because yeah. it was one of those things. So you'd been there, hadn't you? You'd you'd actually experienced that. What, what was it like? Because I went to Shum with Kim Mazel when that opened.
1: Yes, I and, went uh,
0: there. <laughs> and that was just genius. <laughs> you know, the, I met it, Mark
1: Moore. I met Mark Moore there.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot.
1: and said to him, I want to sing in your group, and he said, fine. <laughs> you know, that was that. Um,
0: so were but, you aware of who was doing what? Were you actually very aware? Oh God, of yeah. who, you know? I mean, so when you went out, you could sort of say, ah, look, there's so-and-so, and make a no, beeline because, in a way.
1: <laughs> no, not at all, because that didn't happen in the beginning. In the beginning, I heard there's this new music, this new kind of music, which nobody knows yet, but there's a few people that go to heaven on a I think it, I don't know if it was a Wednesday or whatever it was, you know, Thursday. I have no idea. and that, and there there are some strange dances that people do, and you know, and 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 it's something to check out. So I just went. And there were literally twenty people on the dance floor in a big room at heaven, and they were doing sort of robotic dances, and they played Acid House. and there were some people standing around the dance floor with their, with their arms folded in front of them and they were very skeptical you know there were some hip-hop guys and all all kinds of people standing there going nah you know and what the fuck is this you know and I I loved it immediately went back next week so now you didn't have 20 people on the dance floor but you had all the hip-hop guys and all the other guys also on the dance so this grew like wildfire three weeks later you had for for five hundred people, it w- really was that amazing, you know. And then there was no more, you know. The hip hop guys don't like it, and the rare groove guys don't like it. You, they were all there, you know. So I mean, the Shoom. Was-
0: when I was at Shoom, there was this massive energy to the club. Mm. I mean, it was it was absolutely incredible. There was, you know, and and, and I really I really love that. But tell me about this meeting with with Mark Moore because. Um, you must have gone up to him, and he wouldn't have known who you are. So no, how, how did he
1: react? Sung. No, because I I hadn't sung on anything yet in 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 England, um, but I'd read a an interview in the NME of uh, where Mark was saying that anyone who's crazy enough can sing in S Express, and of course I loved Theme from S Express, you know. Um, there was a mystery to, the, to it, to the video too. I thought, wow, there are all these people, you know, in the video and they're great. And um, so I saw Mark and then plucked up all my courage and went up to him and I said, hi, I'm a singer. And he said, oh, really? And um, I said, you know, and I saw an NME that <laughs> I could sing in your group. <laughs> and he said, give me your phone number. And, you know, if something occurs, I'll I'll give you a call. And he did. Uh, took a little while. And he called and said, could you come to the studio tomorrow to sing a couple of things?
0: Can you so remember that's... his reaction to the first time you sang?
1: Yeah, I think they were very happy. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So you then yeah. made a couple of tracks with him on that... Uh album, didn't you? I don't know how much you you worked on the album, but um, Pimps, Pushers and Prostitutes, of course, Mm. which is something. And No Mm. Breaks on My Roller Skates, I think, was something to do with him, wasn't it? Or was that different?
1: Actually, you you mean that the song that I did later, No Breaks, right? uh,
0: Sorry, then I've got muddled up. So let's get a... No,
1: there was a third song on, on, on the Essex Press album, and I can never remember what it was or what I did. Shame on me. Um, so no breaks tomorrow because I did much late. I did like I don't know when it was, fifteen years ago. Or oh, so. Okay,
0: but the okay the, the but the songs with with Mark Moore and that experience with Mark Moore. What do you feel that that gave you? Because suddenly it feels like when I when I read about that period or I've I've heard interviews with you about that period, it sounds like you suddenly found a little community to be in.
1: Yeah, because uh, there you know we we were Hey Music Lover was a big hit and we were booked to a, a play a lot of big festivals and things, you know. And uh, I was only the guest singer, so I could be pretty crazy, you know, and just sort of tag along, which I did. But I mean, I, I I just loved all the people. They were nuts. They were all insane, you know, in a very good way. And Mark was sort of, you know, the, the mastermind behind it all. He just watched all the madness and found it funny, you know. Uh, it's a bit sort of that Andy Warhol thing, you know, you watch the madness and you smile and you to yourself, you know, and, and, and we were booked a lot in Germany, playing crazy festivals and Italy. And, and so, um, yeah, I just had fun, you know. Um, I was, I, I, I don't know if I necessarily fitted in with this, this group but it was a massive experience, you know, really amazing. And I remember we did this, this thing in Italy, which I would love to get a, there's no video of it that, that we can get hold of. Um, we played in this, uh, for a television station in, 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 uh, in uh, Napoli, in Naples, and I couldn't be bothered to mine, to my part. <laughs> so first of all, I was wearing like a seat slightly see-through top and everyone in the group thought it was hilarious because it wasn't really done. But to me, it was like normal, you know, just be a bit punk rock and and they were like giggling. And, you know, so there was that. And then when my part came up, I want to take you higher, I just stood that, you know, looking bored. Mark thought it was hilarious. Every, we, we were shown the footage, you know, and Mark saw me not miming. And then any, anybody else would have kicked me out of the group, you know. Um, and he just thought it was hilarious. So it was really you could just be yourself in s Express.
0: Were you also writing songs at that stage and and actually sort of developing your own uh, creativity in in the background, as it were?
1: I had uh, I w- yeah I'd already written a lot of songs in Berlin with the soul with Billy and the Deep, but and, and also another group. Um, but in, in London, yeah, I uh, on pimps, Bushes and prostitutes. I wrote the. Who's gonna pick me up? When which later became that song and that song and that song. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I brought. I would always bring along some bits that I'd written, and uh, I uh, at that time I had already written talking with myself too, which later became the Electride song. Um,
0: so were th- were these songs okay? I know you wrote some in Berlin on the way, but also in London. Were these songs were uh, that started to get really influenced by your own? Um, experiences, your own relationships, your own feelings and whatever
1: yeah. yeah, but that had always been the case, you know, always um, so I guess I just developed a little bit you know, as a, as a writer probably in earnest, you know yeah
0: I mean, what I love about your story is that there's, there are uh, immense moments of highs And there are, you know, the rejection and immense moments of lows. There are the comebacks. There are the changes. It's sort of it's it's a very it's like a it's a film in itself, but a a very long film of different dynamics. And one of them is, you know, it includes the cliche of the advert. I mean, it's sort of the cliche in the in the music business, isn't it? Someone puts an advert in a newspaper. You know, Elton John looking for a you know a writer and along comes Bernie <laughs> Tolkien, and yes, it's similarly yes. but what I love about your advert was the the terminology what you wrote can you remember what you wrote
1: yeah soul rebel seeks musicians genius only now if
0: I had seen that advert and I was a musician and I have no talent in Mr. department but I was a <laughs> musician and I saw that genius only that would scare the shit out of me
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I don't know um, I just wanted to make sure I don't get because you know there are always a lot of some song, so-called songwriters around but they just want to have a hit record and write for commercial commercials and so you know and I just didn't want them to even come along and, do you know someone who replied to, to that ad and he won't remember this Glenn Matlock no from the Pistols
0: oh um, wow who at the
1: time was obviously no longer in the Pistols you know and he He left a message, I, I, he left a message on my answering machine. He, he would not remember me probably or that incident, but my answering machine had uh, the pistol song emi on on my on my answering machine, so when you called me, it would play a pistol song. And then there was a message when I got home saying, "I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> so I called him back and we talked but I, I don't know why but we never met uh, uh you know I think he said you know I'm, I'm forming a band or I'm doing something and somehow for some reason um I I hooked up with the other guys instead so
0: so, but when, that is an amazing story. Amazing, you know, <laughs> the idea of you and Glenn Matlow is also phenomenal. The, um, did you meet the geniuses? And did you think they were geniuses when you met them? <laughs>
1: no, because they looked like an East German rock band when I met them. They they will, I think they will, they would hate me for saying that. No, because they were just starting to dabble in the same kind of music, the Acid House and the House and the dance music that I was interested in. But when they came, they didn't really make that clear. You know, they just sort of said, well, we're in this band and, you know, we don't like our singer and we're looking for someone. And I said, nah. <laughs> so they kept calling me. Brian kept calling me saying, yeah, but we have a studio in Birmingham, you know, and you can bring your songs. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm coming, you know. So, and I basically walked in with three demos. And, and when Brian heard the Talking With Myself demo, which was of course completely different from what it later became. He said, you know, Billy, I think that's the song that we should do. And I said, okay. So that's what we did. And so I think I did find my geniuses. (laughs) I really feel, especially you know, now listening to the new album, the new, you know, the new and inverted commas album that's out. I just can't overstate how brilliant they are. And at the time, you know, sometimes when you're making music in a group, you don't even realise it.
0: What was the dynamic between you at first? Were, were you very much in control in the studio or were they, or was it really a sort of thing of the contribution came from every angle? Because sometimes there is a, there is a dynamic. And, and I can tell that you are quite a strong character, even from this interview. <laughs> You know, well, and I that's would, probably I would, come through grandmother. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh yeah, so I, I mean, I would bring the records. You know, I would bring Julian Jonas' Jealousies and Lies, and, and and I said that's the production. You know, and I would bring Persuasion, and you know, I would bring Soul Records, which they already knew, they already loved all that music, Um and uh, you know, but then of course, so. They, they also were already playing around with stuff and so it came together and I think their influence can't be overstated, you know, and even though I was always moaning about this and that element of the production or, you know, um, it was very much Um, everybody brought their influence in and that that, I can't overstate how much you can hear that on this new album because when I listened to Joe Joe was the the drum guy but also doing the hooks you know the all those beautiful craft hooks and stuff I mean wow you know he just came up with that and that was suddenly just there for me to sing over you know and then and so, I could go on and on about all of them bringing something that they already had, but that they had not been able to explore fully. You know, so I think we we gave to each other, you know, in terms of the personal dynamic, it's difficult, you know, if you ever try to join, for brummies, you know um, I mean they they're not they're their own breed and they were already a gang so I was very much the outsider you know and uh, we, we became closer as time went on you know but there were also frictions and pressures and you know it all went to pop at some point you know so but I but certainly felt
0: you know you did have success initially and yeah. and I and but you stayed in London didn't you and they were in Birmingham? during this period and you went up there and and recorded and then um the album came out but you 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 had success how did that success feel and what was your vision of that success where did you think that was now going to go
1: it's so funny because i never thought of it it was almost like i'd come from berlin i went through some real poverty it, in London and suddenly we weren't poor anymore. It was actually the same for the guys, you know. We were all piss poor before that and suddenly we had a bit of money. Um, but in terms of the success, I never thought about it. I just went, yeah, well, that's what I was trying to say all along in my songs, you know. And, and suddenly everyone's writing, here's this great new soul singer. and And they were interviewing me with questions that, that, that reflected that. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course, yeah. <laughs> you know? So, but I wasn't big headed about it. I was just, yeah, well, that's my story. And finally I can tell it, you know? So I, was, I, I wasn't even stopping for a minute to think about it. I never thought about it. I just, you know, cause I was, the concepts for videos and clothing and styling, that all came from me as well. So I was busy, I was just busy, you know, and then every now and then I would do these interviews going, yeah, 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 <laughs> you know, and moving on to whatever happened next.
0: I mean, you so- talked earlier about sort of self-esteem and a lack of self-esteem. This really suggests that there wasn't a lack of self-esteem by that stage. No, that there we-
1: was. I just oh, didn't right. stop, yeah, I just didn't stop to reflect on anything. At so what,
0: what was the lack of self-esteem at that stage, when you're, when you're successful, when you are getting, you know, I mean, you got critically great attention. When journal, music journalists start liking your stuff, mm-hmm. I think for artists, <laughs> it, you know, it means a huge amount. It means a huge amount for the audience, but mm. the critical side of the audience loving it as well mm. is, you know, is another sort of positive. So I just wondered what yeah. that self-esteem was like and that feeling.
1: I never, I was too busy trying to be myself, trying to be myself, not being myself, you know, I was just trying so hard. I was too busy. I never noticed, you know, I'm on top of the pops shimmying away. When I look at it now, those performances, they were strange, but they were also quite good, you know, because I was taking dance lessons from one of the best dancers ever, Suki Miles, you know, because, and she taught me all that stuff, you know, and (laughs) so I really, I just wanted to be the best I could be, you know, finally, you know what I mean? And I would always like, and try and add something else to it. I was never satisfied. You know, we took Suki on tour with us. I wanted her on stage next to me. You know, I wanted to do like a, a dancing together. I just didn't want to be just by myself there, you know, and and uh, so I was always just trying to add the next thing to try and be myself and figure out what else can I do to make this work, you know? What did the yeah. Depeche
0: Mode gig do to your, you know, to supporting Depeche Mode? What did that do to your confidence? Because it does sound horrendous.
1: Yeah, it was. Um, I I mean, like somebody said, I should do like a eight-part Netflix series about my whole experience in the music industry, because I haven't really, it's never been written down, or, you know, I'm not about to write a book anytime soon. Um, It was, in those days, Deepesh Maud's fans were sort of really hardcore, you know, and they, they would just not want a, any support group on stage, it didn't matter who you were. So we were bottled of stage every night, you know, and we had to stand there and take it and face it. Sometimes I didn't want to go out. Sometimes I didn't go out because I just it, I, I was that distraught by it all, you know. I, I didn't understand it at first. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to do this for two months, you know, and the band, Depeche Mode, they were feeling sorry for us, you know. And they said, yeah, they do that to all of the groups, you know, and um, so, and I think the band started breaking up because of it, because we were just quite unhappy, you know.
0: Well, the pressures must have been immense, you know, if you go out on stage and you're having, you know, missiles of certain (laughs) sorts thrown at you. One thing, you know, that um, you had tomatoes thrown at you and I just thought, (laughs) what? How do people get hold of tomatoes? At a again, they bring place? them
1: in plastic bags in Paris. It's in Paris. It's a fucking sport. And apparently, <laughs> apparently, the Beatles didn't go back for 14 years after they played in Paris once earlier in their career. they bring plastic bags. I don't know if they still do it now. Those bastards. They bring plastic bags with. Coins, shoes, tomatoes, vegetables, and just to fucking throw them at you. And there was this, there was a, there's, see, there were all these things where where now I can laugh about it and the group can, could laugh about it. At the time, nobody laughed about it. There was this one thing where we were playing a song and the lights would always go, go down at, in that particular moment. And the song because there were I think there were three nights in Paris in this big stadium and um, and so the lights went down you know because we were already being you know bottled off stage and stuff and we were standing there and the lights went down and I felt this drizzle and I thought that's interesting like a rain effect coming from you know somewhere And when the lights went back up, I sort of turned around and Les on his bass keyboard, at his bass keyboard, he was standing there covered in tomatoes. (laughs) And one of the tomatoes had switched the keyboard off and we were all looking at him like, oh my God. And it was so funny, but it wasn't at that time. You know what I mean? And then I remember going after the show and I turned around to the band and I said, after the song, we're off stage, we're going, we're not, you know, so we, d- we went off stage. Then we went down to the canteen to eat uh, with Jepesh Mode there. And the caterers, they said, would you like some tomatoes with your, <laughs> with your meal? You know, so they were taking a mick out of us, you know, but at that time we were not smiling, I can tell you,
0: you know. No, I can imagine that. I mean, it's funny to hear a story like that. You know, it yeah. is definitely funny to hear a story like that. But to be on the receiving end night after night, and mm. to have that humiliation, mm. um, it's something that grows within you and is yeah. very destructive. Um, how do you think that played into you had the you know, you had the manager Tom Watkins who uh, was also a quite destructive uh, yeah. character. Right. Um, and he was trying to split up the band, as I understand, mm-hmm. um, mm. which is sort of a classic thing that, that yeah. you know, some managers do. And I, I never know where it really comes from. Did he have his yeah. reason? Did he have a particular reason, financial? He wanted someone solo, well, he wanted this.
1: I mean to be honest uh, he try- he did it to Bros and the pe- he tried to sack Chris Lowe from the Pet Shop Boys I mean you know but I- a lot of people in his office his staff and and also his co-manager they would take me aside and they would say he does that to all the women so go figure you know yeah
0: yeah, yeah. that's terrible and mm. um of course you know you so you have this horrendous humiliation with Depeche Mode you, you know you have the problems with Tom Watkins mm. and then you don't have a hit with Inside Out and mm-hmm. then you have the humiliation with the second album in mm-hmm. terms of the record company can you tell me about that moment that it was rejected and what that well, did to you?
1: I, I think we'd already been arguing as a band between us you know so there wasn't a lot of there weren't a lot of good feelings left, for for many reasons after the tour, you know, um, and and we would try and. Uh, I remember we were musically unsure of ourselves, which listening back to the album now is crazy. We had, you know, we could have. I think we knew there was some some stuff, but I don't I don't think we were sure that we had an album, you know. Um, And we were also sort of put in the studio with another producer to help us out and, you know, all that big record company stuff that happens to groups, you know, and then I don't think we were very sure. And we did some other demos as well, which which, uh, I'm not gonna um, put out there because we were just sort of, because I would come in with drum and bass, you know, my new my, my latest discovery you know let's do some of that and, and I remember the guys saying yeah okay but I don't know if our demos are good enough and you know so and I think so the final straw is then you know we deliver this album and I mean, I mean we did put across that there are a couple of mixes that might need looking at again you know but but here it is you know here's, and then we were told it's a, it's a pile of shit
0: what literally those words <laughs>
1: Well, our ARM guy, someone put it to us. um, At the time, we'd gotten rid of Tom Motkins, so I can't remember who actually told us that we were being dropped from the label. And we were told that the managing director had said, What's with this soul shit? (laughs) So we then, without a deal, we tried to get signed and didn't get signed right away. And I think. It was different times then because you didn't have the digital world out there where bands can just go fuck it we can release this you know I mean you could form a label but you'd have to be a very strong unit to do that and you know because it was all about physical you know vinyl pressings you know um and cassettes and you know whatever people did at the time so I don't think that culture was out there yet of being totally self-sufficient So I think we just broke up instead, (laughs) you know? I mean,
0: rejection is a very hard thing to deal with. It's hard when you're not successful, but when you've been successful Mm. and then you get rejected, it's a bit of a double whammy. So how did that make you feel inside and what was your reaction to it? Did you sort of hide away at first?
1: I went to Warner Chapel, And and they had a demo studio, a very good one, actually. And I said, look, I don't really know what to do, but, you know, um, we broke up. I told them the band had broken up and I said, well, let me do some demos, you know, in in the studio. So I I did some demos, (laughs) but I remember having absolutely no money. And so that was the hardest actually to be, yeah, to be, really, like, without really worrying about having a roof over your head, you know? So I just did demos for quite a long time.
0: I mean, I know that financial uh, uh, problem, because if you, you know, I mean, after my career sort of died at one point, I had, you know, before that, I had a lot of money and I lost Mm -hmm. everything, I lost my house, because, Mm -hmm. you know, you you live on a certain amount of debt sometimes as well, and when, when the carpet's pulled away, then then there's really something it's about existence and it's about that moment of existence and that is crushing for your creativity for a while was it for you
1: no because I just did demos and songwriting and and so the creativity is just I don't think I had any support network I think that was the problem about what to do with it you know I had no manager no band uh, no co-musicians you know I would just sort of work with the odd person here and there and um so i think that was the problem more than anything that i had no um infrastructure in which to operate and and have my voice maybe put out there again um that didn't happen for two years and it only happened when because i was so fed up but because i had at that so too about I would say a year and a bit after the band got dropped, I'd written Your Loving Arms, you know.
0: Did you write that with David Harrow?
1: Yeah, he did a bit of a techno-y little backing track, which I still have the cassette of, actually. And I wrote the song on top, you know. Uh, So I I had Your Loving Arms and I had demoed it already, uh, pretty much sounding the way it ended up later sounding. And um, so I would go, around some record companies you know um, i think the publishers probably helped me get a meeting here and there and it was rejected absolutely everywhere so i went to new york was rejected there you know and later when it was a big hit in america they were all like oh shit well, you know we we wish we would have signed it and i'm like yeah well you didn't you know so anyway no one signed that and then um, I, I remember, and then I had a really terrible manager for a short while, you know, who did absolutely nothing. And one day I was so fed up. And I said to him, You know, don't you think I should do a short showcase gig with my demos? Um, and he just went, Well, I don't get involved in that sort of thing. And that was the final straw. And I just called the jazz cafe and said, Let me do a gig there. And they said, Sure. And I was signed literally the next day.
0: Now, your loving arms was, in in essence, for me, I see that as a gay man, as a gay anthem, Uh, you know, and it was something, and I have wonderful memories of that song. And there's something so warm and wonderful. And um, it's almost like an insular experience of love. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's very, it's a very beautiful song. And you. you... Perform that in uh, Miami, at a, a gay mm. club in my, Miami. Can you tell me about that? All the that time,
1: I performed it. At, I think I, there was, wasn't a gay club in Miami where I didn't perform. Oh. <laughs> it was, oh my God, it was great. I mean, my first performance in, was in New York at Junior Vasquez Club. Um, and I can never remember if it was Sound Factory or Twilo at the time. It might've been the last night at Sound Factory actually. And I had no idea that the song was already so big in the clubs. Like I had zero idea. And I remember six in the morning, my performance, you know, and I'm coming out and this wave of sharp screams and love, you know, coming towards me, like literally, like this wave. And I hadn't even sung a note, the beat started, and people went crazy. So that was the first time I realized, oh my God. This is happening big, which without Junior wouldn't wouldn't have happened, you know. And I, I'm forever thankful. And so then uh, I would then later go back, and then move. I, I ended up moving to New York. So then I performed a- around the United States, and I I was always go back to Miami. But at that time, when the song was at its at its biggest in in America, Miami was incredible, you know. I mean, literally just waves of love. And it was as if myself and people had been waiting for that song, you know? Because I remember in one club, um, I said, well, she would been waiting long enough to sing that song. And people just screamed when I said that, you know? And so it was just so beautiful, you know, such a moment.
0: Yeah, yeah. no, I mean, as I said, I mean, that song for me is something very special and something of an, of, it is of an, of an era and I was uh, listening to it this morning again yeah. and it brought up all those uh, <laughs> wonderful feelings and emotions and warmth. And that's yeah. why I think it's so beautiful. Now I'm gonna jump, jump cause I wanna talk about the album, obviously. And <laughs> this, um, this album was stuck in a sense in your drawer for yeah. 30 years
1: yes. and, you, and you didn't
0: <laughs> think about it. You never thought about what that is. You never listened to it in between.
1: never Never. so
0: when you finally took it out the drawer and listened Mm. to it how did you see the person Mm. that had sung and written those songs all those Mm. years ago to the person you are today
1: well it's funny because when i when we mastered the recordings because they were very low level on the debt, you know and so um it took a lot of restoring and and Trying different approaches to mastering to actually hear everything. And then, so once I could hear everything, I was amazed because actually every word was about what I was going through at that time. And to have had that opportunity at the time, I wasn't even aware of that. You know, again, something that maybe you don't appreciate when you're that close to it. But, you know, every word, every experience, I mean, it's about my relationship that I was in at the time and then about some other things too of course you know but yeah so I'm I was moved I was moved for for the for the person I was because I I had never been moved before by that I just did it you know (laughs) you do it you move on you know and the band breaking up wouldn't have you know exactly made anyone go back and listen again. You know, I'm sure that the group, the other guys probably didn't, you know. But now that, that actually made me feel very moved.
0: What, what would your older self have said to your younger self at that time to make you feel better?
1: <laughs> I don't know, oh my God. Um,
0: because an album is a snapshot of all these feelings, emotions and thoughts. So <laughs> it is very much where you were at at that time. And as we change and develop in life, we Mm -hmm. reach another point, which is often more comfortable with ourselves, let's say, Mm -hmm. and and who we are and Mm -hmm. not having the same problems and angst and whatever that we had when we were younger. So, you know, is is there something very comforting about knowing Mm -hmm. um, not only that, I mean, not only that the music is fantastic and not only what you created there has immense value today, but knowing that you got through a period and got to where you are today?
1: Mm. Well, I think, I'm not sure exactly what I would say, but what strikes me is the realness in the lyrics um, and the delivery. I was just shouting it out. Um, I mean, the, 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 the determination with which I'm telling my story. And I think there are two examples. One is she, the first song, Insatiable Love, she flies into the room just in time for his call and it's time for a change, you know? So that was happening. And I probably did that daily, you know? And, um, you know, this kind of telling, and then this, um, she wants to eat the whole world. She, want, she tosses and turns like a secret ballet, you know, aching for the thrill, the thrill of not feeling pain. Wow, I mean that's heavy shit, you know. And I was, I, I, how did I even come up with those words? So I would say something about, well, girl, you certainly kept it real, you know. And then the other uh, song, "Deadline for My Memories," where I'm like, "There's a body on the floor that looks like me," you know. I mean that's me cry. That's about me crying for the breakup of the relationship, you know, and thinking that's is this me that's going through all this trauma you
0: know has and it changed your memories of those times because you know like we have expi- we have times in our life where we feel oh i was pretty unhappy back then but then mm-hmm. later on you look back and you look upon it differently and you don't see it in the in the same way and this album is connected to a lot of difficult experiences not mm-hmm. just musically but mm-hmm. also what was happening with your career and everything back mm-hmm. then Has this actually sort of given you a wall feeling of some sort of positive outcome?
1: Well, it was the beginning of me getting in touch with myself because the relationship breakup, which went on and on and on, um, and me acting like some nutcase about it, you know, started the process of who who am I? Um, And I bought all these books, all the spiritual and self-help and esoteric stuff you know about who am i really and who's this person that's looking for someone to validate me you know and and that didn't happen so what else is there so i bought all these books and it helped me tremendously i mean that's the that was the start of me going there's something here that i haven't yet done you know and that's me (laughs) i've never been to me I went to paradise. <laughs> Seriously. So it started the process, which is ongoing today. So without that, I wouldn't have started that, you know, I without there being literally nothing left of me, you know, who I thought I was, you know what I mean? That fighting, fighting woman, you know, um, and that hadn't come to fruition in my relationship. And then, there was nothing left of me of the old me you know and then i started on what what do i do now you know
0: i mean i think that's started amazing because creativity creativity is also um a compensation for our wounds in life and yes. and we work through our wounds through creativity i'm a writer today and for me that's so important to do but at the same time yeah. i've done a shitload of therapy <laughs> as well
1: yeah.
0: because therapy is something where i've really realize, I believe, who I am and become Mm -hmm. much more comfortable with who I am, yet Mm -hmm. yet I can still look back at my wounds, let's call Mm -hmm. them, my childhood wounds or whatever, Mm -hmm. and be able to to, um, take things out of that for my Mm -hmm. creativity, my writing today. Mm -hmm. So has it changed the way that you deal with creativity because you now have a greater awareness of who you are?
1: Oh, God, yeah, I'm really in control now. And I make a lot of mistakes still, because, you know, I produce my own records now, you know, I've got four albums on the go, which are all hopefully um, nearing completion soon. And, um, you know, and I'm really having to pull my thing together, you know, to make them happen. Um, And because being the producer, which you know, I ha- I'm having to learn as I go. You make mistakes, and I do, you know. But generally, the outcome's been uh, in- immense. I'm I'm so happy with it, and the, the mistakes I have to try and do with them, you know. But so I'm I'm really in control though now. I mean, yeah, the I'm reaction
0: gonna- to the album has been universally positive.
1: The Electra, yeah. Yeah, no. sorry, Electra. yeah. Wow. So, yeah. Uh,
0: absolutely. I mean, phenomenally positive. And it's almost like, yeah. you know, this is where the movie script comes. You, you right. know, no one would have believed it. Do you know what I mean? That you can dig up right. an album 30 years ago and it is so, feels so current. Yeah. And it, you know, people are so hungry for it, yeah. and, and it. And it works so well. Now, there must be an immense satisfaction going on within you that this was all worthwhile. Is that is that how you feel today?
1: Yeah, I felt when the, the press articles started coming in, I was more surprised than anyone. I, I honestly just expected another, you know, yeah, there's a couple of people who are gonna pick up on it, but nothing will really happen. And then it all sort of started going on. and um, And I was elated, I was really, Really, really happy, you know. Really, really. I mean, just thrilled, really, and surprised. <laughs> so, well, yeah. it's a
0: brilliant album. I mean, I, uh, yeah, I've been through it a few times. So the, the <laughs> last few days, and I've really, you know, enjoyed um, the tracks on the uh, on the album. And each individual track has um, they're very strong. You know, there's 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 not a weak track. You know, it's all very strong. <laughs> okay. And, and, but that really impressed me that there was so, Mm -hmm. there was so much there. And you, you hear that and you look back and you think, who was that record company executive?
1: I know, right?
0: You know, this is a part of shit.
1: Tell (laughs) me about it. I know that's it's and, and we believed it. That's the bad thing about it. We we I think deep in our hearts we actually thought, oh God, you know, because we we were discussing a couple of the mixes and we were saying, oh, that's not very good yet, you know. So rather than someone saying, Yeah, that's fine, it's something we can fix, someone said, you know, get lost. Do you know what I mean? So it, yeah, it really broke us. I
0: I'd love to see fun. his face today.
1: I don't think he cares, I don't think he would remember any of it, you know what I mean, because,
0: you know, yeah. Yeah, no, but that is, I mean, I know revenge is silly, but in a way there is this this little taste of of revenge because it's in the air that this mistake, you know, he made such a mistake years ago, and that mistake has led to something which is, Really fantastic and perfect for Thank today. You. Now you talked about these new albums, and one of them is inspired by French music. I understand uh, Charles Aznavour, yeah. Jacques Carel, and yeah. was it was was French music always in your life? Because if I remember my you yeah. know youth. My mum right. loved these sort of torch singers, and Charles yes, Aznavour was amongst of them. Of
1: course, you know, I mean, Charles Aznavour was the French Liza Minnelli, you know, and, and his songwriting, his words, that what he wrote about was so ahead of its time. And it, they, he was singing, you know, the, the song "What Makes a Man," you know, so here's a young straight man singing about what it is to be gay and being persecuted by society that was not done, you know, that was no, a no go, you know, and he had hits with it, you know what I mean, hit records. And I mean, all of that is so powerful. And, um, but generally I grew up with, um, the album's inspired by everything French, French movies, movie soundtracks of the 1970s, uh, especially a composer François de Roubaix. Um, that's how that all started. I heard his, his music and I thought, holy, crap i mean really i'm gonna do that (laughs) and then it quickly turned into something totally different Uh, um, but you can hear you know that influence and then it's about my some of my favorite films which are either french or about or set in paris Um, and the characters in those films i mean i read the film scripts and stuff you know and so i always make up stories around what else could have happened or how did the person in that movie really feel if they're not saying that in the script you know so I write songs around those characters so it's about all that and then I thought well and that would be the opportunity to also sing my favorite Aznavour songs and a couple of Jacques Brel as well.
0: I mean, my favorite but, yeah. song is Yesterday When I Was Young.
1: I did that and, one, yeah. Oh my
0: God, I just love that song. And,
1: and guess who I played it with The as members of the Tinder Sticks, the group, the <laughs> Tinder Sticks. And, cause I wanted to make it really weird, like some, like a hypnotic movie soundtrack, you know? And I discovered the Tinder Sticks film soundtracks and other stuff they've done. And I thought I should just ask those guys, but you don't just go and ask an existing group to come and play. But they came, three of them, and played. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't even believe I'm in the studio with them, you know? And uh, so, so the, they're very strange. And then, uh, yes, two days ago, we recorded a 40-piece string orchestra as well for this. And I couldn't be more thrilled, you know? It's just like, yeah.
0: And that sounds like it's a really heart project, you know what I mean? And I but mean,
1: yesterday when I was young he he was twenty five when he wrote that. It's just crazy that what that man did, you know, so yeah,
0: he was also an amazing film actor. yes and, and as well. And I you know, but yesterday that when I was young, I've always thought although it's it's the re, you know the, the the regret and everything, yeah. Um, it's the song that I definitely want at my funeral. Yeah, right? <laughs> Even I know. though I don't regret anything in my life, it's still the song <laughs> that I want. There, I know everyone's going to be in tears. It's going to really cause havoc.
1: <laughs> but how brave it was to sing about these feelings that someone has. Uh, you know, he was singing about an old man who regrets, you know, everything that he hasn't done. And he was 25 when he wrote that. Or, you know, when he wrote things like, uh, what makes a man about, you know, I'm strip teasing in a gay bar, you know? And um, this was after, I mean, this man was slaughtered by the French press. He said he couldn't sing, he was ugly, he was short, and he shouldn't be in show business, you know? He was booed off stage. He was, the press hunted him down, you know, and this guy just went, fuck you. And then when he did, I think it was Love or Him, he did that, that performance, you know, and then suddenly applause came. And then he goes and writes about a gay man when you, you're not supposed to be gay. I mean, think this guy, <laughs> you know, crazy, amazing.
0: Yeah, but this, uh, I just finally, I want to end now because it's finally in that when you talk about, you know, in that way with so, so much emotion about, uh, you know, another, another singer and, and their experience and how they have had to deal with the world, I can see where your power came from and where you've had to deal with your experiences along the way that have been, you know, unbelievably fantastic and unbelievably terrible. You know, they've been extremely hard and yeah. and and come out of it in such a positive way with mm-hmm. such a positive future. So in the end, I just want to thank you for all the creativity you've put out into the world. Thank Some you. of the most amazing music, particularly this album. But I still have to say, because it's my favourite and it has such an appeal to me. Your loving arms was something that so touched me uh, back then. And it was such a wonderful feeling, and because as a gay man and this sort of gay anthem of feeling having these arms around me, yes, you know, oh, you know what I mean, I'm protected.
1: The
0: song was about, so I didn't be Right?
1: <laughs> oh, cry. Cry. <laughs> oh my god,
0: thank you so much! Thank you. Up there is an interview I recommend. Down there is where you can find all the podcast interviews. And here is where you can connect. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ